Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Leah, one of your hosts tonight. And I'm Danielle. Happy to be here with you all tonight. And I'm Sophia. Thank you for joining us tonight on the fourth episode of our sixth season entitled Me, Her, and This. And I'm Leisha. In this episode, two authors invite us into their relationship with important women in their lives and explore how that relationship is moved by another darker visitor. And I'm Karen. Now let's get into the first story of the night. This next story is by a new author to the podcast who has actually been hosting with us all season, Kira Prasad. Kira Prasad is a 22-year-old senior at John Jay College, majoring in global history and minoring in digital media and journalism. A native New Yorker and a self-proclaimed nerd, in her free time, she can be found reading, journaling, eating, or discovering new places in the city. She is also the creator of her own online community and the host of the podcast, The Sondra Life, and hopes that by following every passion she has, it'll lead her to living a life she can't wait to wake up to one day. A warning that this story touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Now, let's take a listen to Kira's piece entitled One in the Same. I could never be like her. I know because I've watched her for years, 17 years to be exact. Shorter than five feet, petite, baggy clothing, and furry socks. She birthed me, as she so often reminds me, but I feel like I'm her caregiver every evening after 5 p.m. She was my first example of love. My first example that love needs to be chased and fought for, and man, <laughs> do I fight. Every night, I sit here on the expensive, European-made, dark brown couch and watch again as she lifts that lime green cup to her lips. What are we going on? Ten years now? Yes, that's it. Over a decade of watching her curled up in the same spot, with the same cup, with the same drink. Sobieski vodka and ginger ale. I wonder what her liver looks like. I wonder what that drink gives to her that she can't get from herself. I wonder what she's trying to mask by sipping that cup. Why can't she be better, stronger, happier for me? I don't expect her to anymore, really, even though she's had to use her own strength all of her life, from growing up with a young, abusive Guyanese mom with 13 people who shared one small apartment upon their arrival in New York City. As she described it, it was a house of terror, to being forced to enter an arranged marriage at only 15 years old with an abusive drunk, then escaping that marriage and being on her own at 22. At 25, she finally found some happiness with my dad, but it always seems her happiness was short-lived, having to now deal with my sister's perpetual drug and criminal problem and raising her granddaughter. It all took its toll, I guess. So yeah, that strength, for me, I stopped waiting long ago. She thinks I'm fine and I do not let her believe otherwise. Plus. I don't want to add to her plate. My eyes flick to the flat screen television, 
waiting for Jeopardy to appear. We do this every week, five days a week, and without fail, I sit here with the same thoughts about her. Here she goes again, 8 p.m. on the dot, blasting those damn U2 songs I cannot stand, especially the one called Where the Streets Have No Name. These songs don't mean anything. They're utterly pointless. She has overplayed them. I resent them. I resent her. Why can't I be kinder to her? Every time I try, but she makes it so hard. It makes me wonder about my own future often. If I can't have a great relationship with her, what will my relationship with my own children look like one day? I've ran it over and over in my head during many sleepless nights. How did we get to this place in our relationship? But, you know, I don't think there was ever the destination. We didn't just land here spontaneously one day. We've both worked against this relationship for a long time. Why is the million dollar question? Sometimes I think of the irony. Her relationship with her mother is rocky at best, so why would ours be different? Why would ours not continue that cycle? I know that a day will come when she won't be here, and I don't want to be filled with regrets. I know I love her. I have to because she's my mom. But has she ever really been a mother? Maybe that part of her belongs to the liquid in the lime green cup or to the U2 songs. Well, there was that one time, the time I got my first period. I was 13 and walked to school only to call out and walk back home because of this new bodily pain. I knew she'd be home and would make a big fit about me missing a day of school as if I did it often. I dreaded seeing her, but 20 minutes after I fell asleep, she came into my room with a tray. It had steaming hot chocolate in a large teacup, Keebler saltine crackers with butter and some cheese. It was so simple. It was affectionate and motherly. Or that one time when I was 15, when I finally started to understand her more, especially with those damn U2 songs. This time, it was trying to throw your arms around the world. We lived in Woodhaven then, and she still had that lime green cup and she told me how that song reminded her of me, us always trying to be there for one another. This song reminds you of me? I wanted to scream, shocked. Right after, Until the End of the World came on, and the lyric, Lead Me On with Those Innocent Eyes, sparked something in her too. She turned to me and said, Kira, you have very beautiful eyes, baby. Two compliments in one night? Maybe we're making some progress. Those memories always turn sour quickly, though. Remembering myself as a teenager trying to come into her own with a tempestuous relationship with the one person whose guidance I needed. I was somewhere around 15 years old again, still in that house in Woodhaven. We were sitting in the living room with bright hardwood floors and surrounded by poofy brown leather couches, and I was in another brutal argument with her. She said a comment that got under my skin regarding something or other about me being a brat after I just called her out for having a funky attitude. This argument was one that led my emotionally fragile teenage self into the slate gray powder room sitting in the dark on the closed porcelain toilet for what felt like hours, just listening to Drake's voice in my ears singing, having conversations with mama, man my life is a mess. It was comical how well those lyrics fit into the crevice of my cracked heart. I emerged from that bathroom hours later, still agitated and anxious and silent. Later that night, 
The lime green cup made its grand entrance and so did my mom's question. Do you hate me or something? I looked at her and laughed. I saw the pain in her eyes. I never answered. Here I am now, 21 years old. I'm sitting on the red, gray, and black carpet in the living room. She still has the lime green cup, still wears the baggy clothes and fuzzy socks. She's still on the edge of that dark brown couch. But something is different. We're once again waiting for Jeopardy to appear on the flat screen, but we're laughing together. I tell her about the ex-boyfriend who won't leave me in peace. I ask her how to heal my heart. I know she has had to repair her own too many times to count. At 8 p.m., I put on one of our favorite U2 songs, the one talking about the nameless streets we've traveled. Months prior, our relationship shifted as it seems to have done so many times in recent years. At 10.37 p.m., she sat me on that couch and in the blackened living room, our voices eerily quiet, tears in her eyes, she spilled many regrets that she believes would have altered her life in a completely different direction. And honestly, with the life she has had to endure, I can't help but wonder the same. She told me about a young boy named Raymond. He fancied her in school, and at 13 years old, he called the house looking for her, but she terrifyingly knew that her mom would be listening on the other line, and she gets severely punished for it later. So she said to him, I do not know who you are. Do not call here again. She got beat later that night for that phone call, and she has never heard from that boy again. But years later, she'd have a son who she named after him. She told me about when her favorite teacher in high school found out she was getting married at just 15 years old. A balding white man in his mid-40s, Mr. Cousine. How he looked at her when he heard the news of her fate and whispered no. I swear when she tells that story, she can still see his face. She told me about her abusive arranged marriage and how many times she left only to be forced back by her own family until she finally had enough. She told me all the dreams she had about being a dancer and a singer. On that night, I realized we now had a friendship, not only as mother and daughter, but as friend to friend. I think she needs our friendship as much as I do. I hugged her at 11.58 p.m. and went upstairs. I sat on my hot pink yoga mat, grabbed my phone, and changed her contact name from the emotionless, detached mom I'd always had and typed in mama. The U2 song about the nameless streets is still playing, or playing again, and I tell her that I have the title of the song tattooed on my right foot. It's my song now, mom! She looks at me and laughs loudly, a smiling shine behind her eyes. I'm still sitting on the same carpet, happily shouting about my YouTube tattoo, and I look at her, at this beautiful, sophisticated woman in front of me. She birthed me, but now she's my friend. Now I see the wisdom in her eyes, the strength. Now I see the love she has, the gratitude she's filled with looking upon me. I see beyond the lime green cup now. I love her. How could I ever have resented her? That's when I realize I am her. She is me. Wow, Kira, that's such a beautiful story. Thank you for joining us tonight. Before we get started with this interview, Life Out Loud just wants to recognize that stories about substance abuse can touch people in unexpected ways. We want to share with listeners that if you or someone you know is experiencing difficulties with substance use, there are resources available to you. SAMHSA, or Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, 
has a national helpline that provides free and confidential services in both English and Spanish, providing information and referrals. They connect individuals and families facing substance use and or mental disorders to local services such as treatment facilities, support groups, and community-based organizations. Their phone number is 1-800-662-HELP or 4357. And their website is www.samhsa.gov. For a list of more resources, please check our website. Yeah, thank you so much, Kira, for being here with us today. Finally, on the other side. Yes, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's so cool being on this side. <laughs> Oh, this is awesome. I'm, I'm once again, like, so it's been like a theme throughout this entire season of people that we've only gotten to see as hosts, also mm -hmm. now coming on as authors. And it's just been yeah. awesome. Those have been some of our favorite stories. Mm -hmm. Yes, Kara, I want to start by saying I love how in your story, you bounce back from two different perspectives, one being when you were 15 trying to figure everything out, especially um, your relationship with your mom, and the other being when you're 21 and you're more mature and you have a different worldview. So with that being said, throughout your story, time is condensed into two narratives. The first narrative to per pertains to when you were 15 and you had all of these unanswered questions about the relationship that you had with your mom and the promise that you made to never be like her. Mm -hmm. Whereas the second narrative shifts to when you're 21 and it seems as though your focus is more on how you and your mom can heal together as a unit. So do you think that time can help repair things that are considered to be broken or does time just force us to step out of our comfort zones where we just leave things in the past and address things we don't want to address? Oh, I see you all came from my neck with these questions. <laughs> Oh, um, okay, that, that's, that's a loaded question. <sighs> I would say that in my experience with time, it can heal a lot of things, but with the healing has to come growth. You can't heal unless your perspective on situations change. And I think that's what happened with my relationship with my mom. Um, I think at one line I said that basically I see that I understand her more as a 15 year old girl even though we we're still having fights and and I was still trying to figure everything out but with that change in perspective came her sharing of stories and that I can empathize with so to imagine when she when I was 15 hearing her story of being a 15 year old girl mm. in an or about to be in an arranged marriage and, right. and not understanding where her life was going because everyone was kind of planning it for her um, I realized how lucky I was to have her make the decision when raising me to not be put in that same position. So not only did me growing up in that concept of time um, come into play, but the idea of now I'm finally listening to her as a person and not just hearing her. Yeah. Yeah. You like feel that in this piece of you starting to see her as like a human instead of just like a like you know like a figurehead as like this is a mother this is who this is supposed to be and they are supposed to be perfect and supportive mm. and you know you you see yourself start like the even like the things that you didn't like about her like you too like you start just like seeing that as like a cork and being like actually I do like this song it's just like, <laughs> 
<laughs> relating to her more as a person. Yeah, and so, if I can add real quick, it's just um, like I've read somewhere before that our parents have never been this age, just like we haven't been the age we are now. So it kind of put, helped put into perspective for me that they're still humans that are experiencing new things too. And I think we often look to them as like superheroes or they're supposed to have everything figured out, but they don't, they're just humans. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that's a really good way to look at it, Kira. So I've been your fan since last semester when we had creative nonfiction. Together. Oh, thank you. I've been your fan too. <laughs> together. So I'm really proud of you for this story. And I think it came out really good. And I want to talk about the music aspect of this because I feel like it was a big deal in the story and important for you to include that. So you talked about how your mom played the U2 songs to the point that you were resentful of them and that you guys are sitting in the living room watching Jeopardy. But then as time goes on, um, you guys are in this routine and you talk about how you grow to love the songs as much as she does. So I'm wondering if you think that you coming to terms with this music and also adopting it as your own has contributed to a better understanding of your mother and if it caused you to like relate to her more since that distant phase when you were 15. Yeah, it music is very important in my family like my parents are playing 80s like every night so it definitely has an impact on all of us but me especially I think that like when I started when I stopped resenting those songs and started actually hearing it um and hearing her reasoning for loving them so much I think that it really changed my look on it like I can't even listen to certain U2 songs now without crying because I think of all that she had to go through so when she um getting emotional okay so when she um when she was young and she had like the two kids by herself um she went through a lot so when I hear the songs like I hear her and like I can't not hear her strength in those lyrics anymore that's beautiful that's beautiful like we Oh my God, it, it's like that, that, I just love it because it's, it's that juxtaposition between like you realizing exactly the type of person that she had to become in order to endure all of those things. And like you learning to appreciate that in this story and like through, like we were talking about before is through seeing her as a human person with like likes. Mm-hmm. Like the part that really like struck me in this was I was like, wh- when you mentioned that she wanted to be a singer and a dancer. And I, for some reason was like surprised. I was like, oh yeah. Like people don't just like not have dreams and just don't like, they aren't born as like the people that we kind of, you know, have qualms with and like you know it takes a sec and it takes a lot of like hurt and you can hold on to those like like those things that they do mm-hmm. are able to hold on to like love of you too and like like love of music and stuff it's really really special to see and like mm-hmm. even you like getting teary-eyed about it right now and getting that tattoo as well that you're talking about yeah it's like, 
I have two now actually of like different YouTube songs on me. So yeah, the the music, I think that, I think we hear it a lot, like especially in our generation that music kind of speaks for us. So to hear it from my mom who you don't really think about as a young girl when you're growing up and kind of self-involved as a teenager um, to finally hear her through those lyrics and all the things she had to go through. Whereas in my life, my experiences aren't mirrored, but I can take those songs with me to kind of um, add to the wisdom that I'm getting from her. So. I love how you like talk about the YouTube songs as like kind of a lullaby for mm-hmm. when you're an adult, because all the like unspoken words, all the um, all the time, everything that you didn't get when you were 15, it's now all condensed into these lyrics and. It's something that you're going to love. Yeah. I just want to say your story was really beautiful and hard hitting. Like when I was reading it, I really, really felt it. Like it made me tear up a little bit. It was really beautiful. Uh, so lastly, what if anything, would you like listeners to take away from your story? Oh, there's so much. I think that on a surface level, I think that we tend to villainize our relationship with our parents, especially when it's bad as teenagers, because we feel like things will never get better. Um, And if there is young teenagers reading this, it does get better. I think over time, as you become an adult and come into your own and like understand your parents more, you become friends, as I mentioned in the story. So that will happen, even though it may not feel like it right now. Um, And then on the basis of watching someone you love deal with alcoholism or any addiction it's it's hard you know no matter what it looks like no matter what consequences it has even if they're like quote happy drunk or or something like that it is hard to watch someone do it but I think the best thing you can do as an outsider especially as a child of a person dealing with that is um to humanize them more I know that like I used to have a lot of trouble watching the alcohol, like just just seeing the alcohol, which is why I was so um, expressive about the lime green cup throughout the piece. Um, Just seeing it would get me triggered and angry and upset. And as I got older, I kind of realized that it's kind of her only outlet at this point. She she tries to be a good mom. She tries to be just a good woman, a good daughter. Um, And trying at this point is all I need to see because we all are trying our best no matter what demons we're struggling with um so if you are anyone that you love is struggling with substance abuse or addiction of any kind just just be kind about it is my best advice because it is hard but you'll get through it that's beautiful yeah you said that so beautifully and eloquently better than any of us could have so thank you This story is by a new author to the podcast, Mackenzie. Mackenzie is a 22-year-old Jersey original and a master's student at John Jay. Her minor in creative writing during her undergraduate years inspired the strength to share her personal struggles through her writing. She wrote this piece detailing the dysfunction related to addiction, recovery, and love. She hopes the approach of humor and honesty will eliminate the stigma of addiction. 
She wants to thank her previous Life Stories Fall 2017 class and Nonfiction in Spring 2021 class for the incredible support and camaraderie. A warning that this story touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Let's take a listen to Mackenzie's piece entitled Abuser. I'm high. The joint fills the void in my empty chest as I sink deeper into the lawn chair furniture. Mom's deck is small and dingy. The wicker coffee table is littered with bra brand cones and silver one-hitters. My black and white striped drug rug hangs on my shoulders. The industrial fan buzzes on the side of me, shaking my torso. I bring one hand to my heart, making sure the rose quartz crystal that I carry in my bra hasn't moved. The weird guy in the crystal store on 86 told me that the stone has the most power when it's next to your heart. I took this as a direct suggestion to keep it in my bra so I could promote some of that inner healing and self-love as advertised. He'd put his hand through his greasy hair before giving me a deal on the crystal. It was either a nice thing or a pity move. Maybe my energy is just that bad. Weed hog, my baby sister whispers. Jaden snags the joint from my hand before sitting back into the sky blue beach recliner. Her bleach blonde hair that she straightens every day is tucked into a messy bun. She takes a huge pull of the half-smoked joint and blows the smoke into my face. I swat at the cloud and hold my breath. My iPhone 6 vibrates desperately in my pocket. I ignore the messages knowing it's Lily. I want to answer. I always want to talk to Lily, but she doesn't like me when I smoke. In the beginning, Lily was okay with me getting high. She lived in Boston for her genetics internship, and I would drive the four hours every week just to be with her for the weekend. The The weekdays were the problem for me. I was alone in my apartment. I was alone with my thoughts. I was contemplating suicide. Lily helped me schedule a visit with her psychiatrist's office. The appointment was a month away. A whole month. I spent June in bed, and when I wasn't stuck in bed, I was getting high. By the time my appointment was a few days away, I was always high. Every day, I woke up and made it to my window while thinking about jumping out of it the entire time. When I was finally high, though, I was happy. The ruminating thoughts were gone. The heavy rock in the bottom of my stomach dissipated. I could eat, shower, and occasionally go outside. The appointment came, and I went high. The antidepressants would take two weeks to kick in, the doctor had said. Two more weeks, and I'll stop, I said to myself, and to Lily. That was six months ago, and here I am, on my mom's back porch, still high, and still ignoring the calls of the most important person to me. Two relapses later, and I'm back where it started, disappointing Lily again. One of the first times Lily and I hung out, she brought me to work with her. She dragged me up the concrete stairs of the greenhouse, and our hands were tied in a knot. The humid air choked me. I loved it. She brought me into a room that housed hundreds of plants. Fungi, succulents, and everything in between covered the glass panels. Lily stood in the center, her straight auburn hair parted to the left, dangling into thin strands. Her black shirt exposed her pale arms. Her green eyes merged with the plant's hues. In the middle of the greenhouse, no plant compared to her. 
I was so caught up staring at her that I didn't notice her filling the watering can. She proceeded to soak me while I simply stared at her. I snagged the hose and drenched her back. Soaking wet, we laughed. In the winter, she would pick me up from my volunteer gig at the new Jewish home on 106th. She waited under the scaffolding with her rose gold beats on. She would, she would wear a deep red lipstick that would make me look like the Joker. But her? She would look like Katie Holmes. We walked with our hands in her pocket, which was always an experience. Inside, I would find loose AirPods, uncapped Burt's Bees chapstick, and whatever else she tossed into Narnia. I always gave her a hard time about those pockets. And about her leather jacket collection. The vast collection only consists of two coats. One, a light brown that complements her hair and inner horse girl. The other, a slick midnight black fit for the back of a motorcycle. After countless numbing hits, I can only make out my sister's mascara-touched face, hazel-eyed glare, and the light of her phone and the red end of the joint. I grab a one-hitter and start packing in the sativa I got from Boston. The dispensary was an old converted bank with teller spots and everything. There was a line in the parking lot that was like waiting to get into a super-secret club. I held Lily's hand and played with her herbal essence-washed hair. We were kissing and hanging on to each other because everyone in line was super chill, minding their own business. We normally never did PDAs, especially when we weren't home in New York, because it wasn't worth getting hate-crimed. But here, somehow, we felt like everyone was in their own bubble. Like, we were protected from the outside world. The bouncer guy scanned my fake ID and Lily's real one. Before the constant pressure to quit, that was the most nerve-wracking part of being 20 and a pothead. That same weekend in Boston, Lily's friend Tanner came to visit. I was trying to play it cool, so I brought out my best story. The Riverside fiasco. I, I told him about how I lit a cone by one of the piers in Riverside Park. Some cop came out of nowhere and pointed out at me in my camo windbreaker before I took off. I ran for three blocks to the subway, and I was home free. Her friend? Impressed. Lily wasn't. She glared at me. She hated that story. She didn't like hearing about the dumb shit I did when I was high and reckless. I decided I didn't care, though. The three of us had gotten back from a restaurant, and I was ready to get fucked up. That, that came first. So, I excused myself to the ladies' room. The bathroom of her dorm building didn't have a strong smoke detector, so I hit my pen. I took a huge rip of the tangerine-flavored oil before coughing, on purpose. I liked coughing because it makes me higher with every gasp for air. The door of the communal bathroom swung open. I can smell the pen, Mac, she hissed. I opened the stall door and motioned for her to take a hit, like I wasn't hiding it from her. She put her hand up, already annoyed with me. Is that your first hit? I nodded. Are you sure? Now she was questioning me, which meant she knew that this wasn't my first hit. Still, I nodded. Were you high in the car? Did you drive us there high? Unsure of my next move, I nodded. That was my pattern. First lie, then lie a little bit more, 
backtrack to the truth, always beg for forgiveness, and finally, one last lie. By this point, I'd promised Lily I was going to slow down, cut back, whatever I could say to put her at ease in that moment. Are you going to stop doing this? She finally asked. I nodded. My phone starts for a second round of vibrations. I stare at Lily's name before tossing it onto the floor. I try to grab the joint from Jaden, who jams it back into her mouth. Just answer the phone, asshole, Jaden says as she flicks her ashes onto my black converse. Her huge acrylic nails continue tapping on her phone. On one of our first dates, I complimented Lily's nails. The deep black drew my eyes against her pale complexion. Over a year later, she told me she continued painting her nails for six months because of that compliment. The truth is, I was just trying to keep my shit together and play it cool. Instead of telling her that I thought she was the most beautiful, special person in the world, I'd said, nice nails, even though I really couldn't care less about them. On the Columbia stairs, I asked Lily to be my girlfriend. I'd, I'd never had a girlfriend, and Lily had never stayed past a fourth date. She said yes. Then we went to see the movie Us. I was so scared. I spent the entire movie in the crevice of Lily's neck. I only cried twice throughout the entire screening, which had to be a new record for me. I hadn't been that scared since seeing the woman in black when I was 12. She didn't seem scared, though. She was brave like that. A few months later, the third season of Stranger Things came out. Lily binged the first two seasons as quickly as possible so that she'd be caught up for the third in time for my birthday. I didn't want to watch it alone. I was too scared. That night, not only did Lily walk me down the hallway to the bathroom, but she even held my hand while I peed. She made fun of me the entire time, but still, she did it. She always does everything for me. She makes me salmon and cauliflower rice after I'm exhausted from training. She proofreads all my papers and never complains. Why can't I do this one thing for her? Was I even trying? No. Well, I did it first. There was that one time I quit for an entire month. She was so proud. She said she knew I could do it. She told me she didn't like the person I was when I was stoned and didn't want to see her again. On the 31st day, I threw it all away. I got high with Jaden. The lie started all over again. The door to the left of my smoke station opens, blowing out the cold air and some of my weed on the floor. You idiot started without me? Mom yells at the top of her whisper. Shh! Jaden retorts. You want to get caught? I'm pretty sure weed is decriminalized in Jersey, but I'm not trying to fight with any more people right now. I scoot over so Mom can sit on the other half of the bench, which lands me closer to the fan. I grab my chest again searching for the crystal, but this time, Jaden sees me. Playing with your boob rock? Is that a lesbian thing? Mom carries on. She takes the one-hitter out of my mouth and lights it. 
She turns to see my reaction and laughs. Finders keepers, losers weepers. She shoves me in a friendly way that hurts my sore body. Annoyed at mom, I pick up my phone and start packing my shit. I toss my grinder, flour, and pineapple lighter that Lily bought me for my birthday into my pink Jansport backpack. I step over mom, who grabs my butt like a toddler. Come on, it's a joke. You always overreact. Mom calls at me. Lily's parents wouldn't smoke with her. When I first asked Lily about her parents, her gaze fell to the Barnes & Noble floor. She told me about how she tried to come out to her mom in the car at 14. You probably won't feel that way in a few years, her mother dismissed. You should try again, I encouraged her. That was years ago. I'm sure it'll be different this time. She listened to me, and her mother threatened to pull her college payments if she brought it up again. She hasn't talked to her mom since. I walk in from the deck to the apartment and try not to break every stupid cat toy in sight. I tell Alexa to shut up, stopping Post Malone in the middle of circles. I throw my phone on the ugly puke green couch. I slam myself into the uncomfortable sectional and lay flat. I reach in my pocket and pull out a bag of Jolly Ranchers I bought at Quick Check on my way home from the city. I grab each flavor, one by one, unwrapping them carefully. I put the blue raspberry, cherry, watermelon, green apple, and grape logs into my mouth. I, sal- I salivate, curing my dry mouth as my tongue brushes against the Cherry Rancher, Lily's favorite. I wish I could call her. I can't, though. She's at her breaking point with me. At this point... I can't afford to screw anything else up. Yesterday, she found my stash in the bathroom under the sink in my apartment after I'd sworn to her I was done sneaking hits. She asked if I was high. I lied. She asked if I loved her. I didn't lie. She told me I have a problem. She told me that getting high alone in the bathroom isn't normal. She told me that I never lie to her when I'm sober. She was right. She called me a liar, an addict, and an asshole. She was right. She asked me to stop. I lied again. Said I would. I told her it was my mom's fault. I told her it was the addiction of my family. I told her I can't. She said, talk to me when you're sober. I finally look at the messages. Two unread texts. If you're high, don't call me. See you when you're back to yourself, it says. (sighs) Two more weeks, I say to myself. Two more weeks and I'll, I'll quit. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. What a powerful, powerful piece. Thank you. So much for joining us, Mackenzie. But before we get started with the interview, Life Out Loud just wants to recognize that these stories about substance abuse and suicide can touch people in unexpected ways. We want to share with listeners that if you or someone you know is experiencing difficulties with substance abuse or suicidal thoughts, there are resources available to you. SAMHSA, or Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a national helpline that provides free and confidential services in both English and Spanish, providing information and referrals. 
They connect individuals and families facing substance use and or mental disorders to local services, such as treatment facilities, support groups, and community-based organizations. Their phone number is 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. And their website is www.samhsa.gov. In addition, if you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis and emotional distress 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the U.S. Committed to improving crisis services and advancing suicide prevention by empowering individuals, advancing professional best practices, and building awareness. Their phone number is 1-800-273-8255, and their website is suicidepreventionlifeline.org. For a list of more resources, please check our website. This was such a beautiful piece. I felt like I really got to see how much you care for Lily. This story is a testament to that cloudy gray area that results from love and addiction mixing together. I really felt like I was in the story with you. And it's definitely because you wrote about these specific textured experiences you and Lily had together, Mm -hmm. greenhouse water fights, stranger things, marathons, and scary movie dates, to name just a few. Mm -hmm. So because I know everyone's probably wondering after reading, how are you and Lily doing now? We are great. Uh, We've been together. Today is our 33 months, which is like two and a bunch years. (laughs) So I talked to her this morning. She's great. I'm great. We're great together. Good team. That's good. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny how people come into our lives when we least expect it. And those are the people who usually become the most important people in our lives mm-hmm. later on. And it seems as though like Lily fits perfectly into your life. It's like she came at the right time. And I know you mentioned that um, she was there when you were at your lowest. And from reading your story, it seems as though Lily has been your rock through all of this. So with that being said, Mackenzie, it's very vulnerable to admit your faults. So I commend you for the bravery and self-awareness it takes to write a story like this. Mm -hmm. While I was reading this, I thought one of the most powerful things was your repetition of the line, two more weeks and I'll quit. By mentioning it in the beginning, then bringing it back around at the very end, you really perfectly summed up the cycle of addiction, the deferment of healing to another time, another day that for some people never comes. So I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit about the state of mind of that and possibly what it took to break that cycle for you? Yes. So her support was so important, especially being around substances, 24 hours a day as she was my positive influence in saying like you can do this it's not going to be forever how you feel and she was always just promoting you know the both of us we can get through this this isn't going to be forever this isn't Mm -hmm. permanent and her support especially without you know the support of my family in that time was the separating factor for me quitting and continuing to not only hurt her, but hurting myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
it's really sweet that you have that support and that she really stuck by you because you can genuinely see like her care and her love for you and that's so admirable like as a just a human she's so kind Mm -hmm. um and as a follow-up to that question we also noticed that throughout your piece you repeat the number two like in general like you'd say two weeks for the antidepressants to kick in two relapses later two coats two seasons of stranger things two unread texts and we just want to know like was that like purposeful was there like some intention behind it because some of us infer that the repetition represents the two things that you are being pulled between throughout your piece which is lily and weed but we just wanted to ask you personally about the reason behind this choice so it was actually a coincidence that i was repeating the number two um whenever i would think about you know like a long term you know I, i can stop for x amount of time the number two is always very comforting to me Mm -hmm. because it's one week extra or one step above Mm -hmm. the bare minimum. So I was like, I am trying. That is me trying. And I I really like that this, um, this pattern kind of brought out because it's honestly, it was just the two of us. It was Lily and I, and we were just battling it out through this entire time. That's about, I think that's like a perfect coincidence. It really works. Yeah, it really does work. And it really showcases in the piece. Uh, now, lastly, is there anything that you would like your listeners to take away from the story? Yeah, I, I definitely want everyone to see how difficult it is to quit or stop a substance especially when you have um like I had someone great supporting me like Lily was amazing in supporting me and it wasn't a lot of times it wasn't fair to her to burden her with that so I personally do regret a little bit not seeking help from resources you know like uh going online or talking to a therapist or talking to someone to help me So I do want to encourage anyone who's experiencing these sort of problems to reach out and get help because stopping cold turkey or doing what you can Mm -hmm. is only going to take you so far, but really getting the help from the professionals that know what they're doing would have been a huge factor when I was going through this. And I, I was trying my best, but really needed that extra level of support. So I, I consider myself lucky. Mm -hmm. wow yeah and that is a very powerful statement to end on a reminder to our listeners that we do have resources available on our website if Mackenzie's encouragement was the final push you needed (laughs) thank you once more Mackenzie for sharing this wonderful piece with us for sharing your thoughts your feelings and how much this piece means to you absolutely thank you so much That concludes our fourth episode of the sixth season, Me, Her, and This. We are also excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get behind the scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud.
And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night. Good night.